Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. This is the second of many episodes we are calling In the C-Suite. In these episodes, we explore what it takes to be a C-Suite leader, what has shaped and influenced them, and how they have responded to these extraordinary times during the pandemic. Today, our guest is Jeff Brown, COO of California-based Endologix. Jeff started out in sales, but he made his way into operational leadership. How did he do that? And how did he avoid getting pigeonholed into certain positions along the way? He was eventually hired by Endologix to be a critical member of a turnaround team. The results of their efforts were that they won the 2020 Turnaround of the Year Award from the Association for Corporate Growth. What can we learn from Jeff's approach to leadership that helped lead this turnaround team and his response to the pandemic? This episode is packed with great advice and guidance. Now, don't forget, if you like this episode, please rate it, recommend it to a friend, and or subscribe. And be sure to check the show notes at the end for links to Jeff, myself, and a book that he recommends. By the way, I am also the host of the MedTech Leaders Community. This is a community where leaders get together to share best practices. It's a non-LinkedIn community. If you're interested in this community, there is a 30-day free trial. You can learn more about it at medtechleaders.net. Again, that's medtechleaders.net. Now, let's get together with Jeff Brown to learn more about important elements to leadership and career management. Jeff, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast Program. It's really great to have you on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Ted. Sure, sure. And, you know, this is um, the second of my In the C-Suite series. And so, uh, Jeff, you are the victim of this program today, uh, sort of humorously speaking. But anyway, you know, you are the COO of Endologix. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about um, Endologix and your role there as COO? Sure. So as COO, I'm responsible for all global manufacturing, uh, supply chain, and all its parts, uh, as well as research and development uh, globally for the company. Okay. And how long had you been with Endologix? Ooh, uh, about two and a half years. Okay. Two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And what got you there? What brought you into the company? What? Yeah, great question. So um, I was actually scouted for, if you will, across country. I'm originally from Boston. Um, and I was uh, found because they were looking to do a turnaround of the business. And so I had had um, sort of covered a niche show for myself in the turnaround game and a business transformation game, if you, if you want to call it that. Um, sort of, I prefer to call it that. 
And that's what they were looking for. And so they, um, you know, we kind of put the parts together and they asked if I'd be interested in coming out and helping to facilitate that and work with the, the rest of a new leadership team. And, and, um, and it's uh, worked out rather well. Okay. Wow. So it was almost like a complete new leadership team. Mm-hmm. But of course, as a COO, that's a vital component of any C-suite leadership team. Now, your career started in sales, which I think is terrific. It's great because I don't know how many COOs started in sales. You know, you typically think of of somebody that's like a chief commercial officer, chief marketing officer, chief sales officer, whatever. You think of those people coming out of sales and, you know, they can make it into the CEO. There's lots of CEOs that carried the bag at one time. Sure. But how did your experience in sales help you move up the corporate ladder and eventually into the C-suite? Yeah. So, I mean, it all starts with a customer, right? So having a sort of a profound understanding of customer needs, building rapport with customers, uh, no matter what role you have. I mean, if you're um, just, you know, located at the, at the home office, if you will, being able to have that correlation and that linkage to the customer, it really helps to, to, to understand better what is needed out in the field, it can help our sales force, what can help our overall company be, um, be better for, you know, serving that customer base. And so, uh, you know, having that understanding, I think really went a long way you know, I've, I've always formed very strong partnerships with my commercial uh, counterparts, if you will, because I, I do have that profound respect and from my prior sales experience, really understand what it is that they need. So I've had this, you know, I think uh, really tight linkage in being able to get them what they need to be successful and vice versa, to be honest. Right. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about this because in the interview I did Friday, uh, with uh, Trevor Maga, he had not spent any time in sales. And that was one of the career points that he made was whatever you do when you get into this industry, try to get as close to the customers you can. Mm-hmm. And you can't get any closer than sales, right? Right. right. That's, that's great. Now, what attracted you to life sciences of all places? Well, so I have a degree in microbiology uh, mm-hmm. from the University of New Hampshire. But I also have a minor in business. So when I graduated, I really wanted to sort of meld uh, business and science together. And so my first job out of school, and it was, I sort of took the first job I was offered out of school, which was uh, in sales for uh, animal life science uh, devices, if you will. Oh. So doing a lot of animal uh, laboratory research at universities, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, and the like. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. So not really a veterinary product as much as like a, uh, a research lab type of product, group of products? Yeah. is more for clinical laboratory um, uh, testing, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of devices, there's a lot of drugs and things like that that need to go through animal testing. Uh, and so a lot of our devices were sold into those markets. Right. And then somewhere in here, you went back for your MBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, luckily Johnson and Johnson helped pay for oh. for me to go back for my MBA. So they paid a hundred percent, and kudos to them for that. So I went back for my MBA at Babson College in uh, Wellesley, Massachusetts. Again, I'm from the Boston area, right? And uh, and that was a, an excellent experience. I really, really loved my time at Babson. Uh, learned a lot, and really, you know, I think an MBA really puts together a lot of the major facets and aspects of business. So you're not just sort of one dimensional, 
you become much more multidimensional going through a program like that. And since we're talking about that, what's your opinion of MBA at the point you did it in your career? So you had some, you graduated mm -hmm. from college, got some work experience, then with the help of J&J, &J, you tackled your MBA mm -hmm. versus just going right from college into an MBA. Yeah, so I feel pretty strongly, and I think I know where you're going there, that that going for your MBA, and I tried to do this as a matter of fact. So when I was graduating at the uh, University of New Hampshire, I, I applied, um, or I looked into, I should say, going for the MBA, and they strongly advised against it. And, and to be honest, I agree with that. Uh -huh. you, you really need to have a good five years of experience, I think at least. I had, geez, I think it was um, about 10 years or so experience. Um, leaving, uh, maybe in just over ten years, to be honest with you, after my uh, uh, you know my bachelor's, in order to go into my MBA, and and that experience is incredible because you know one of the biggest aspects I found with the MBA program was you're not only learning from professors, uh, often which who have done it before, who have actually been out in the working world, but you're learning so much from your fellow students, right? And, mm -hmm. and they're bringing their experiences and things from different industries, from their experience. And, and we're applying what we're learning to, you know, my examples, their examples, other people's examples, and, and you actually get a lot more out of it. Now, is this the kind of group that you can create some camaraderie with that you would keep in contact with going forward? Sure. You know, I've, I've stayed in contact with a few folks for my MBA program, but that's getting a little long in the tooth now. That was uh, 2007 that I, yeah. that I finished that up. So, uh, you know, we've all kind of gone in our own directions and every once in a while I'll have someone reach out to me or I'll reach out to someone and they've, you know, you're, you're pretty impressed oftentimes with uh, some of the things they've been able to achieve and, and certainly happy for them. Okay. And then you, when you joined Johnson & Johnson, what role were you in there um, prior to starting the MBA program? So I was a manager of uh, sterilization operations. And so okay. uh, it, was, it was part of operations, but it was also a very scientific-oriented form of operations. Uh, it was a key role within the supply chain. And how did you make that move? Because you were in sort of the sales side before this, and then you're going into J&J. &J, right. And even though you don't have your MBA yet, they're paying for it. You're going to school. You're in an operations role right there. How did that happen? So, uh, yeah, I think there was maybe one job we may have left out. That's uh, part of what why it happened. So after okay. my, my first role, I was in, it was a family-run business, this, this animal science device company, if you will. I was there for about a year, but it was a family-run business. It didn't have a lot of promise or, or future to it. And then I actually moved from there to a company called Hemanetics. It was a medical device oh, yeah. company. Yeah. And in, again, in the Boston area. And was there for about five years in, in doing operational type responsibilities. I also made um, a great contact with a colleague there while at Hemanetics who helped to you know, recommend me when I went to Johnson & Johnson. So when I went there to j and I had already had the Hemanetics operational experience. And then uh, my friend Mark uh, Johnson had also recommended me strongly for entering j and And that's exactly what happened. Okay. And I think there's a, there's a little bit of an important point here between the lines that you sort of made from a career standpoint is you're with a, a family-owned company and it was probably a delightful company, but didn't necessarily have a lot of promise. And sometimes these smaller companies don't have the resources to 
to help grow and fulfill somebody's ambitions and or provide like additional training programs that Hamanetics or J&J could like, you know, as you're trying to gain additional skills, additional management and skills and so on and so forth. So it's a similar thread to the previous interview is there can be a lot of value in working for a large organization. Sure, sure. It's sort of like going to a larger university too, right? There's more resources. Right. There's more investment in um, in the staff. There's more opportunity in terms of being able to move around within the organization and try different things, oftentimes with a larger organization. So yeah, definitely. I, I definitely see that there's a lot of benefit to a larger organization. But you know, I've worked for small cap, mid cap, large cap companies. I've enjoyed my time in all of them. Um, but I tend to, I think, be, be a better fit for mid and large cap companies. Sure. And then where did you see this change going from the sales side into the operations side? When did that start to gel in your head that you wanted to head in the operations direction? Yeah. So when I was at, again, Hemanetics, I was in an operational focused role and I started to build a fair amount of clout in, in this space, right? Again, it was a sterilization at the time, sterilization focused operation. And you don't really learn sterilization when you uh, get a degree in microbiology, come to find out. And so I had to self-educate myself. So when I got that role at Hemanetics, it came with a stack of books like you wouldn't believe. And they said, here you go. You're our new microbiologist and, and sterilization operations person. And, uh, you know, here's a whole stack of books and journals and things. And, you know, go and educate yourself on this. And so that's what I had to do. But because I sort of built uh, some clout in that space, I started receiving a lot of offers to do outside consulting and things like this. And I actually did do some uh, after some time, but it was a bit of a niche. And, and that that's kind of a key aspect of my background was I unfortunately kind of found myself falling into this sterilization operations niche. It's a very finite, small niche in the medical device space that doesn't exist really in pharmaceutical or biotech and in other spaces. Mm -hmm. And, um, and after some years, and this was at J&J, &J, as a matter of fact, after some years, I realized I was there for, geez, almost eight years, and I was in the same role, and that I may never leave that role unless <laughs> I kind of take my ladder and put it on a different wall so I can climb it. And so that's exactly what I had to do. I had to really focus on the operational aspects of my role and position that, and that's what helped me move beyond J&J &J into Boston Scientific and other roles. Now, having said that, though, when you go back to the Hamanetics and then your your the first role that you had at J and J, it is still really important that um, you built this clout. Tell us tell us more about building this clout. What do you mean by that? It's just an expertise, right? And mm -hmm. and in something that is. Um, sort of demands an expertise, right? You know, a lot of people don't want to do their own electricity and or electrical work in their home because it takes a certain expertise. And you, know, you can right. create a fire, you can get shocked. There's a lot of danger there. And this was a, a space that the FDA mandated, right? So we're FDA regulated, obviously. And the FDA mandates that you have expertise in this area. And very few people become experts in this area. So Suddenly, I, I, I kind of fell into this bit of a pigeonhole, but then I sort of became an expert in that topic. But again, it was operations related, uh, but still science based in the world of steriliz sterilization of the device. The devices all have to be sterilized 
in order to be used safely by our end customer, right? Right. So, but there was really no growth trajectory. You know, the highest person I've ever seen in that space was a director, ever. And uh, I was already a manager at that point. So I I didn't really, I, I couldn't really aspire to all that much. And so I decided at that point, I needed to change things up. I, I wanted to get more into core, you know, fundamental operations. And that's what I did in all my subsequent roles. Okay. So the big question is, because this is really easy to happen in a corporate environment, you get pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Oh, Jeff. Well, yeah, he's a sterilization operations guy. I really can't see him doing much more than that. You know, I, I can hear people saying that if they're considering you for another kind of a role or or breaking out of that particular area. How did you break out? How did what did you do to, like you said a minute ago, put your ladder on a different wall so you could climb it? Yeah, no, that's a great question, um, and I get that a fair amount actually. So what what I decided to do was a couple of things. I decided to partner. Well, first of all, I wanted to, or I needed to define where I wanted to go. And and I decided it was going to be operations. I I might've wanted to go towards um, supply chain, which I also did eventually. I might've wanted to stay in manufacturing. I wasn't quite sure, but I knew operations was a much better fit. Uh, You know, I'm an analytical person. I like to build things. You know, I, I like to, you know, be responsible for larger teams of people. And of course, in operations, you're responsible typically for the largest teams of people in any organization. And so, so what I decided to do was if I'm going to go towards supply chain and, and sterilization operations was very partnered up with supply chain, I, I started to take on project work and things like this outside of my realm that I could do for the supply chain team. Okay. okay so I would lead a project and things like this. I would then take the wins that I was, you know, fortunate to drive in those projects and then tack those onto my experience. I focused on the operational aspects of my role, driving greater efficiency, you know, decreasing uh, transportation costs, you know, things like this, uh, and add to that other supply chain project work and things that I, that I had done, right? So, and I oftentimes would let them take credit for it in, in the supply chain there. And this happened at Johnson & Johnson let them take credit for it because on my resume and things like this, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take credit for it myself as well. Um, but be able to showcase that I'm far more of a uh, supply chain oriented individual. And so my very next role after Johnson and Johnson was to be a general manager uh, for a site uh, for Boston scientific. And it did have a little bit of a sterilization focus to it. But that was a large step, sort of one foot into pure operations and one foot still in the sterilization game. Right? Sure, sure. And then after that, then I took my foot out of sterilization entirely and then really focused entirely on operations thereafter forever. Wow, that's a great strategy and set of tactics. That's uh, really awesome. I like that a lot. Yeah, let the other people get credit. But on the resume, you can take credit. Excellent. Right. Very, very good. Okay. so. A couple of years ago, you get a little over a couple of years, two years ago, you get hired by Endologics as part of this team that is supposed to help turn the company around. You know, what were the challenges that you saw when you came into Endologics initially? 
Yeah. So there were a number of <laughs> a number of challenges. So Endologics was really a company that had been formed by the culmination of three different companies, right? So three companies all doing the same thing, which was AAA disease. So Endologics was or is uh, entirely focused on uh, AAA disease. So it's abdominal aortic aneurysm disease. Okay. It's called the called the silent killer. You know, mm-hmm. you you really know of no symptoms. And, and, and unfortunately, a good number of people in the United States die each year from uh, AAA disease, unfortunately. It can be very serious. And so Endologics put together Trivascular and a couple of Nelix and, 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 and the Endologics company into this, you know, culmination of three firms and was a little aimless with their strategy. They had three different product lines that all did the same thing. So they were kind of cannibalistic of one another. And... And, and, you know, we had a brand new leadership team. We had not grown. The company had really been sort of what I call the incredible shrinking company for about five years prior to my joining in 2018. And, uh, and yet they had a huge cost structure, you know, and, and, and during my time there, you know, I, I was responsible for actually taking nearly a quarter of the, all the costs in the company out of the company. We had, you know, to do some um, reductions in force, unfortunately, but we had to really reduce the cost structure of the company quite significantly, which we did do. In addition to that, you know, drove a lot of other improvements in the business, but, um, you know, small company, 500 people, but we had two different manufacturing facilities. So, you know, we're on the road to consolidating those and, and just the number of things that were really not um, sort of well put together and it just required some, some changes. Right. Some fresh thinking. Mm-hmm. And even though you're taking cost out of the system, the fact that the company had been made up of three different entities, it sounds to me like there were a lot of opportunities for cost reductions without sacrificing product design, product quality, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's true. You know, we couldn't take all those costs out, if you will, right. but we were able to, to, to reduce them quite uh, significantly. Okay. This turnaround team, which includes you, very important role, COO, one of the top roles, right there, right-hand man to the CEO. Mm-hmm. And you're working on these things. How much time did it take for you to get some of this stuff turned around so you could see the, you know, the rewards for your efforts? Sure. So, uh, you know, it came in drips and drabs, if you will, right? So we saw some benefits uh, within two months. Mm-hmm. We saw other benefits within a year. Um, you know, one year later, there were there was quite a bit of uh, improvement, if you will. And uh, in a year and a half in, we were really, you know, that's where I probably completed about eighty percent of all the benefit that I was able to drive with the company. Uh, so far, has has been about a year and a half in, and now I'm two two and a half years in. We're still driving a lot of improvement. One of the things we're doing is we're looking at acquiring other businesses that offer complementary products. So we're not uh, so cannibalistic in our product offerings, if you will. Uh, and we're just trying to modify the strategy quite significantly in that way. Right, right. Now, the result of all this work is that your team, you and your team won the 2020 Turnaround of the Year Award from the Association for Corporate Growth. Now, that's a terrific achievement. What were some of the components of that? You what are some of the things you had to do to, you know, to attain that um, award? 
Sure. So again, owning manufacturing supply chain and R and D, I'll kind of focus my answer in those realms, right? Okay. So, and that was really what won the award was the work in those spaces. Not so much on the sales side, unfortunately. We're still working uh, through some of that, to be honest. But in manufacturing, we leaned out our cost of goods sold to support an eighty percent gross margin. An eighty percent gross margin in the med device world is almost unheard of. That's it's huge. That's Gee. quite. That's quite rare. So every unit we sold there on out, you know, we made a heck of a lot more money on uh, every single time, right? So that that's powerful. So 80% gross margin in the manufacturing world. Uh, from a supply chain perspective, uh, we did a lot of benchmarking. I'm a big believer in benchmarking. Uh, we can certainly talk more about that. But uh, we did a lot of benchmarking from an inventory perspective. And we actually, uh, in 2019, met, we drove ourselves to meeting the benchmark in inventory efficiency. This is measured in inventory turns per year, right? Mm -hmm. And in our space, that was about three inventory turns per year of finished goods, about four to five inventory turns per year of raw material, for example. And so we were able to exceed that, uh, that benchmark in 2020. So um, we went from three to three and a half turns per year uh, for finished goods, and we got as high as eight turns per year in raw materials. So, um, so, so this was all best in class or even, you know, better than benchmark type performance that uh, we were able to drive. Wow. And, and, and by the way, that was during COVID, no less. <laughs> sure, sure. And I wanted, that's a good segue. I wanted to sort of move into COVID because, um, so you're in the middle of turning all this stuff around, writing some elements of the ship and, um, you know, fixing some of the problems and then COVID comes, boom, you know, and that's a, totally new challenge that you and your team have to face. You know, what, what changed, what were some of the new challenges that COVID brought to the table that then you had to overcome and how did you do it? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of challenges. So incidentally, uh, in addition to manufacturing supply chain and R and D, I'm also responsible globally for our COVID-19 response. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. So I, I run that as well. This is all, all part of the uh, responsibilities of a COO, right? That you do right. a lot of these types of things. Um, but I've actually done a lot of crisis management in my past. And, and, and so I was able to leverage that quite a bit. And we can talk about some of the things we had done, but first and foremost was keep our, our staff safe, right? Yeah. So, so, so looking at staff safety, that was first and foremost, because we can't, we can't help our customer if our employees can't get to work. And if they're ill or not well, then we can't do what we're here to do, right? Which is to, you know, help save lives and things. Uh, so that was first and foremost was to set up, you know, the, the, the aspects of safety for our team. So sure. that, took a little, that took a little time, but you'd be surprised at how quickly, you know, with a, with a great cross-functional team that we're able to get our arms around that, come up with a plan. Again, we did some benchmarking. We don't want to, you know, reinvent the wheel here. We did some quick early benchmarking, leveraged information from the CDC and others, and, and came up with a plan and implemented it very quickly. Beyond employee safety, then it really came, uh, came down to supply chain, right? So managing our supply chain. So one of the things that that I had proposed that we do, and and, and um, uh, initially there was some pushback, but but eventually I was able to convince people. We we did a couple things from an inventory perspective, because uh, in in supply chain you often measure your demand variability, your supply variability. COVID threw everything up in the air, right? So all all this variability instantaneously changed. It didn't shift slowly over time. It just went you know off a cliff. 
And so what I had recommended, and we eventually did, and it became one of the best things we had done during the whole, whole COVID period here, was we moved as much inventory as we could, as close to the customer as we possibly could. So we took product off of our shelves, off of um, the manufacturing floor, out of our distribution centers, and we put it into permanent consignment at hospitals. We put it into our sales rep um, trunk inventories as well. And so we got the, the, the product as close to the customer as we possibly could. Inevitably, for these periods of time, which did happen a, a couple few times, where we had to shut down our manufacturing because we would have a COVID positive, right? Ah. So, right. So then, when we shut down our production, guess what? We had a huge bolus of inventory very close to our customers, and and at a you know drop of a hat, we're able to get it to cases. And we never, you know, I'm, I'm proud, and, and I'm proud of the team. We never ever once missed a case or negatively impacted any of our uh, customers' cases during the entire COVID experience so far. So knock on wood here. So anyhow, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, this has worked out really, really well for us, but it was, it was a good, uh, it was a good learning uh, for the team to see, Hey, you know, you, you start shifting your inventories around. It can actually do a lot of positives for you strategically. Right. What you're saying is, is that in the facility, depending on where a positive test may come up and you don't know, but you have to be prepared for it. It could have also shut down the shipping area. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't have gotten anything out the door. It did did, in fact. So, so we had to shut down. um, We have a facility that's a, that is a joint manufacturing and distribution facility and that had to be shut down. So again, that product had already been distributed, if you want to call it that, to the, our representatives' trunks, right? Or home office inventory or permanent consignment at the hospitals and things like this. We also had a, a third-party logistics, a 3PL site on the East Coast. So most of our distribution is out of the West Coast with Endologics. And we shifted more product over to our East Coast 3PL so that we, you know, logistically, you're kind of playing, you know, from as many uh, decks of cards as you possibly can here inventory wise. So we actually had to increase some of our inventories in order to spread this inventory around. But to be honest, it was the very best thing that we had done. Yes, it does take some cash in order to build some additional inventory. It's not a lot of inventory, but what you're effectively doing is you're, there's a thing called strategic inventory versus, you know, more sort of, uh, fundamental base inventory, financial inventory. You have strategic inventories that you would hold for certain, certain reasons that are not purely financial, right? And so because they either have long demand variability uh, periods of time um, or, or, or their supply chain takes too long or something. So you may strategically hold more of that product. So we built all of our strategic inventories up and then we got it as close to the customer as possible. Uh, it's just uh, terrific. And it's, then you, I mean, you also build goodwill. That's a story that you can tell to your customers especially those that had a, ended up with a consignment, but even those that without a consignment, you can, it's a great story to tell. And it's really great for the morale of the company, the, the team, the team that's in the field. That's excellent. Very, very good. That, that's, a, that's an awesome example of overcoming a difficult challenge, especially with a life and death product like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, just amazing. That's great. Now, one of the things that when you and I were talking uh, before, you know, we talked, especially because of your sales background, we talked about what you could learn in the 
operations area that could be applied to sales. And I, I think that's personally very interesting because I'm also very analytical. I'm the son of an engineer, and I ended up running a large uh, sales operation uh, for a company. And I applied some of my rudimentary analytics, nothing like you would do, but very <laughs> rudimentary analytics back then when I was doing it. So you had some interesting learnings that we had written down about um, how uh, operations could be applied, you know, the world of operations could be applied to sales. Sure. So, you know, in, in a few different ways I would, uh, I would share. And, and by the way, the learnings go both directions, right? So my right. having been in sales helped my operations. And, you know, there's a number of ways that operations can help the commercial team, right? Whether that's marketing, sales, or what have you. So a couple of things. First of all, partner up with your operations leadership, right? And one of the things that that we did um, quite a lot while I, you know, uh, since I've joined Analogics, if you will, is we would get doctors and we would get other members of the, you know, the surgical teams to our manufacturing sites to kind of see where the magic happens, quote unquote, right? And uh, they end up having a, a greater appreciation for what goes into the devices. They learn they learn about some of the engineering and and what makes the device special, right? So that helps their long term appreciation for your products and things. But also, of course, you're taking them out for dinner and things like this. And so you're it's it's helping to build you know tighter collaboration, a tighter relationship and rapport with the customers than to just keep them at their hospitals. Right. So get them out of there, you know, you know, pay for them, obviously, to, to, to come out and see where the magic happens, see how things come together. And oftentimes it becomes like a triple win. I, I talk a lot about virtuous circles a lot because I, I tend to drive a lot of these things. Right. And that if you can have a, a surgeon come out and actually speak to the people that build the product on the manufacturing floor, you wouldn't believe how far that goes. For the manufacturing team, they have so much pride in what they do, and they want to do it more, and they want to do it better over time, right? To have that appreciation from a doctor, for example, or from some other customer, and 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 it goes both ways, right? That the that the surgeon, you know, hears how much pride, how much uh, desire to drive, you know, quality and things like this in a product that um, that the the folks that make this product you know, really want to do. So, so it, it's, it's a huge uh, and very simple thing to do is to, you know, lean and uh, lean on and partner with your operational friends for those that are in the commercial side and, and vice versa. Right. Another thing that I had uh, learned is a, is a concept called hour by hour management. So in the manufacturing world uh, in order to hit, and we're going to tie this back to commercial here in order to hit an end number, Right, our our commercial team members that are that are uh, listening in here, right? I'm sure they have they have numbers that they need to hit within a quarter or a year period. If you want to essentially guarantee hitting a number at an end point, uh, sometime in the future, what we would do in a manufacturing world is we just basically take that end number and we figure out how many you know how many products total. Obviously, it's very simple to to calculate that are required in order to to meet that end number. And then you divide it over smaller periods of time. So if we need to build this larger number over a year, this means how many per quarter, how many per month, how many per week, and how many per day. And in the case of manufacturing, we even go down to how many per hour. So then what happens in this concept of hour-by-hour hour management is if you can deliver an hour, how many units in an hour, 
every single hour and you measure that output, then you are guaranteed to hit your week, hit your month, hit your year. You're guaranteed, right? right? So the same kind of thing can be applied to commercial. So if you know of, let's say that there are precursors to, 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 to driving sales, it could be prospecting calls. It could be marketing, uh, sending out marketing materials, right? It could be a number of different things. If you know that on average doing, you know, prospecting, marketing or whichever, you know, this much of it leads to this much sales, you just do the math, you know, you know what end number you need to hit. And then how much of those prospecting calls do you need to do monthly, weekly, maybe daily? You know, you probably won't go hour to hour, but, um, but, but uh, you know, whatever smaller period of time makes sense. In the case of sales, it might be weekly, for example, right? And you know that you should make, you know, this many uh, prospecting calls and this many marketing proposals, for example. And you just absolutely make certain that you do. And if you put all those weeks together, you put months together, you put quarters together, and you put your year together. Almost guaranteed. Right. And so, you know, so that's something that, you know, I've shared with my uh, commercial friends and help them to drive better practices there. Well, you um, know, a lot of small to medium sized companies, and when I say medium size, I'm, I'm talking companies that can be $25, 50000000 million. Mm-hmm. You know, in med tech, we are traditionally terrible marketers. Um, but also on the sales side, we're not that always disciplined on the sales side to do what you're talking about. In fact, I stepped away from medical devices for a couple of years and sold life insurance. Now I sold it from Northwestern Mutual Life, which is one of the best life insurance companies in the country. And I tell you what, they had an unbelievable training program and they taught a lot of this kind of stuff way back then, way back when I was a kid, because that was a while ago, but it was really, really good. But they did what you're talking about. They broke it down Mm -hmm. and I was able to come back into medical device sales with that training and that experience. And it really made a huge difference, but I think you're right. People need to apply, you know, some of these sort of scientific, um, I guess you could say strategies or tactics to the sales side and, you know, and end up getting better results. You know, if I could maybe add one more to that. So there's Mm -hmm. a concept in operations and manufacturing specifically called standard work. Okay. And in reality, it's, it's more best practice work, but it's called standard work. And what you're effectively doing is you, you look across your entire staff. um, So say you might be prospecting, it might be, closing sales. It might be, you know, whatever type of attribute you may be most interested in. You look across your entire network of all the folks that do that. Let's call it closing sales. And for some reason, you know, Mary over here is just unbelievably good at closing sales. There's something magical about her, right? What is it that she does? And so what you do is you, you make a bit of a study of what Mary in this case is doing to close those sales. How is she able to do it so much better than everybody else? And you actually study exactly how and what she does and you codify, right? You make rules and a process around what it is that she's doing. You're effectively making her best practice work standard, right? So now once you codify what she's doing, you then... Uh, you then train the entire group, Salesforce, marketing team, whatever it is, you train everyone to do it the same way. And then you measure that they are doing it in that way, right? And by doing that, now everybody 
in a very short period of time is doing it the very best way and, and doing it consistently in the very best way. It's called standard work. It's something we do in a, in a manufacturing or a operations world all the time. And I've seen it benefit commercial teams time and time and time again. So if you're not doing that sort of thing, definitely, definitely highly, highly uh, recommend it. Well, yeah, most companies do look at sales through the lens of a sales process, mm -hmm. but in smaller and medium-sized companies, what they sort of define a sales process, but then it's very easy to fall into the trap where you say, well, Joe is really good at the whole thing and he always excels and that's why he's always 120, 110% to plan. Mm -hmm. But, but Sam isn't. And instead of doing what you just suggested, which is let's take a hard look at what Joe's doing and try to figure out, you know, what those elements are so we can train other people to do the same thing. And that also helps sell everybody else on the concept, right? Sure. Instead, they just say, well, Sam's bad. You know, mm -hmm. and, and maybe and it could be, there could be some well, other that's, underlying. That's an easy, and that's sort of an easy excuse too, yeah. right? It's a yeah. jump to that sort of an excuse versus what makes the best people in each of the key aspects of your role of the job, what makes them the very best prospector, the very best closer, the right. very best, you know, different aspects of the role. Study those things, codify it, train everybody to the best practices, and now it's all standard. Right. And if everybody has that, then if they can't perform, well, then that's that's their problem because they've been given the tools, they've been given everything that they need, you know, to excel. And I want to go back to the um, the example that you gave early on about you know working together with operations to for the benefit of marketing and for the benefit of sales. And I just think that's a great example. The example that you gave of let's say having a a doctor come in and talk to the it could be the manufacturing group, which might include sterilization and, and several other things, but to come in and talk and make people proud of what they do. And I think you're right. It, when people are proud of what they do and they're recognized because the fact that the surgeon's talking to them, they're being recognized. In addition to educated, they're being recognized. They're being told that you're important enough for us to bring a surgeon and talk to you. On the other hand, the surgeon is saying, wow, I got to come in and talk to these people. What a great facility. What a great group of people. Mm -hmm. And he or she goes back and says the same thing to the, his, his or her colleagues at the hospital and in the practice or whatever. It's a win-win all the way around. <clears throat> yeah, it's huge. I call it virtuous circle, right? So, so it, virtuous it, it must, circle. I like yes. that. And so it, 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 you know, it effectively becomes like a triple win. It helps the company. It helps the, 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 the staff who are building the product, for example, it helps the customer, right? right. So it helps all the major stakeholders. Uh, it makes it easier for management because the, you know, because you've now motivated and empowered the staff to do better and more of what they're already doing great in. And so it's just a virtuous circle. So, so if you can find those things that, that, that really set up these virtuous circles, then everybody wins. Right. And you can do that now, even, I mean, you just need a, you know, you need a video tool, a GoPro or something and give, give a surgeon a tour and then right. via a, a virtual, um, you know, technology of some, some kind, let him, Give a him or her give a, a a presentation to the people on the in, on the floor in the manufacturing facility. So, COVID's no excuse not to do this. That's right? true. 
That's true. Right. Okay. We were making really good progress. Oh, we're coming up on something really important here. And that is, we were talking before about your writing a book, you know, about accelerating career success. So in between the lines of a lot of stuff we've talked about for the last, um, gosh, 45 minutes almost has is related to accelerating your sex. So if somebody has been listening carefully, they've gotten some great pearls already, but you know, when you think about writing this book and, and sharing this information with other people, what do you think some of the uh, key steps are for an individual to, you know, accelerate their success? Sure. Give us a little bit of a preview maybe of what you think your book might contain. Sure, sure, sure. So I try to break uh, it down. I, I, I sort of formed it into a process, you know, go figure. I'm an ops guy, right? Yeah. So I for- formed it into a process and it's really a four-step process. Um, and each one of these four steps have a lot of additional detail that I'll spare everybody. Maybe you guys can get the book later. Um, should be later this year um, when it comes out. But it really breaks down to four overall simplistic steps. The first of which is really kind of getting your mindset right, right? Not everybody is promotable. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we've all seen people that seem to, you know, jump leaps and bounds very quickly through organizations and what's so special about them, right? What do they know that maybe we don't and things like this? Well, part of it is that they have the right mindset and that mindset is not a, Um, sort of egotistical, uh, self-centered mindset. That mindset is really should be a more what I call company first approach. Okay. Now that's not being a sellout and, and working, you know, for a big brother and, and, and things like this. All it's saying is on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, forget about what your overarching goals are and things like that. We'll manage that at a higher level over longer spans of time within one's career. But, you know, when you go to work tomorrow, are you doing all the right things to have a company first approach? Let me put it this way. The folks that are the most political that we work with, right, that are political animals, are they taking a company first approach or are they taking themselves first approach? Usually they're putting themselves first, right? Right. And usually what happens is when people put themselves first on a day-to-day basis, they're doing it at the expense of the company and they're doing it at the expense of all of our teams and, 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 and at the expense of all of us winning, right? They're looking out for themselves. They're stabbing somebody in the back, you know, things like this. So first and foremost is having the right mindset and having a company first approach, right? Okay. You know, I, re- I recommend on a quarterly basis that, you know, you step back and, and you'll look at your own career and make sure that you're doing all the right things, but you know what, you get back into, you know, work the next week, and you're taking and you're working at, in a company first mindset, right? So that's the first thing is having the right mindset. The second piece is really where a lot of the magic happens, which is what I call deliver massive value. Deliver massive value, right? Couple things with that. Um, you know, of course, I use the qualifier massive. So beyond just uh, delivering some value. Um, beyond just delivering, you know, uh, a fair amount of value, you, you want to deliver massive amounts of value. So how do you do that, right? Well, first and foremost, do people even understand what value is? I talk to recruiters um, quite a bit. I have a lot of them call me <laughs> and uh, want to place people at Endologics or other places. And 
you know, I've spoken with some of them because they're a potential market for this book, right? Them and their clients are a potential market. And they've told me time and again, do you know how much of my time I spend with my individual clients, excuse me, to explain what value is? You know, it's obvious if you're a salesperson what value is, right? Right. But in a lot in a lot of professions, it's not quite as obvious. You know, it may be more qualitative or th- things like this. So, do you even know how to measure value? You know, for example, I've spoken with a lot of people, and they say, "I don't, I don't drive value. I don't drive value in what I do. I may work in retail. I may be in customer service, or you know, and I don't drive value. I just get on the next phone call and help the customer." Well. But have you gone on more calls this year or this month than you did last year? And then what, what's the output of, say, let's just pick on customer service. What's, what's the output of great customer service, right? Is it a better net promoter score? Is it fewer complaints, right? These are things that can be measured. And, and as much as you can, you want to measure these things, right? And typically what I recommend, strongly recommend is not measure absolutes, but measure percent improvements, right? So right. what are the things you can do to drive, you know, a 20, 30, 50, 70, in some cases, percent improvement year over year or month over month in what, in, in what your, um, you know, value that you drive, you know, what that is, right? So, you know, drive massive value, but understand what value is and understand that every role creates value or else the company would not have created the role, Right. So when folks say, no, you know what, I don't create value. You know, I'm just uh, someone I'm thinking of offhand said, I'm just a consultant. I don't create value. They absolutely create value, right? They were in the, they were in the marketing space, as a matter of fact. And so, you know, their marketing this year could be tied to more revenue than it was last year or something like this, right? And so there are ways to absolutely measure that. And you want to drive massive amounts of value. So how could you drive 20, 30, 40, whatever percent more value going into this next month or this next quarter than you did in the past quarter, right? Come up with a strategy, a plan to do that. And then start executing that plan, right? So, so that's the second part, which is delivering massive value. The, the third part is um, doing the same thing, but for your teams, right? So you can be a great individual contributor, but you're only one person, right? So you're only able to do it um, to such a degree, right? You won't, you won't, you have a finite amount of time. You don't have an infinite amount of time, but as you start adding dozens of people to your team, you rise up in the organization, right? You have dozens, maybe you have hundreds of people on your team, or in the case of operations, you might have thousands of people on your team. How do you get them thinking in the same way about company first approach about driving or delivering massive value? Mm-hmm. And then helping empower them to do exactly that. So those companies that we uh, we all um, envy, like Amazon or Apple, or you know, you know, they've done a lot of this, and they're able to do it across their entire teams and help you know most, if not all, of them deliver massive amounts of value. Right. So how do you go about doing that for the whole team? So the book talks about that in the third step. The fourth step is what I like to call is worth the full price of admission all by itself. The fourth step is all about (laughs) marketing yourself, right? So I don't care if you uh, work at a drive-thru at McDonald's, you're in customer service, you're a marketer, you're in sales. 
how can you best market yourself? And the way that the book is laid out is it does, or it goes through both internal marketing at your current company, right? How do you make certain that people in leadership know the good value that you're driving? Because remember, you should be driving or delivering massive value. They should be well aware of this, right? So how do you market that internally? But then also, how do you market that externally? You know, one of the things we talk about in the external marketing is um, we go through LinkedIn quite a lot. We also go through, you know, your, your number one document, which is your resume or your CV, right? You know, there's an approach in there to literally have an award-winning resume overnight, overnight. And if, if I actually explain it all to you, it'd be so simplistic, it would blow your mind, but I don't want to give away too, too much. But no, no, that's just okay. one, one, one of the concepts around marketing. <laughs> you can literally have an award-winning resume base your resume off award-winning resumes overnight and, and, and have it just, you know, be leaps and bounds better than where it currently is. And from that perspective, you're marketing the massive value that you've driven, and that makes you immensely more valuable in the marketplace. Does that make sense? Well, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think an, an, a, something people need to consider here is if you're working for because a lot of the listeners work for small, medium-sized organizations, in a way that that I would say it's no excuse not to find a way to measure your value. So if the company isn't measuring the value for you, mm-hmm. and let's take a role like customer service, you're handling the phones or whatever, mm-hmm. keep track of it yourself. How many phone calls do you handle a, a day? Right. You know, do you ask the people a couple questions at the end, like? create your own survey. Yeah. It's not necessarily scientific, but you know, were you happy with the service you got today or whatever, come up with your own scripts, you know, do things that you can quantify um, so that you can tell somebody, like you say, market later on. If, if, if somebody, if the position of customer service manager comes up and comes open, you can say, well, I, you know, here's how I've done, and this is how I've measured myself. And these are some of the practices that I'd probably recommend for the rest of the team because I'm doing quite well compared to everybody else, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think there's ways you can do it. The, the fact that you don't work for Medtronic where they probably, you know, measure every step you take down the hall, which is great. Awesome company. But, you know, uh, you can find a way to create measures and quantify what you do. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, and, and by the way, but for, when, you, when you compare yourself to those that aren't doing this, you differentiate yourself, right? Yep. Just the fact that you're trying to come up with measures that show the true value. One of the things that we talk about in the book also is a bit of that, uh, it goes down the road of uh, the uh, standard work uh, topic that I mentioned earlier, which is if you can come up with best practices, we talk about you know, uh, benchmarking and, 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 de- and developing best practices. If you can develop practices that are highly effective for you, let's say you're in customer service, you're in sales or something, and it's highly effective for you, then try to share it, have it become proactively. Don't wait for somebody to come in your world and learn it, right? Proactively share it with those that are above you and say, you know, I, I'd like to actually maybe put together a workshop or a, a lunch and learn or, you know, something, share this with my colleagues. I want to help them all to just kill their number 
for example, in sales or whatever, if this can really help, you know, it's helped me to really beat up my number. I want to help them beat up their number. If we all do, maybe they all benefit from, you know, a corporate multiplier and their bonus or, you know, something like this. Right. So, um, so everybody wins, um, but just finding, you know, what really works exceptionally well, and then trying to do your best to share it around everyone, you know, with everyone else. So. No, I think that's a great, a great example. The uh, other thing is that if somebody has done something like that for themselves, Mm -hmm. then they can always invite a, their supervisor to their desk or, or their workspace, wherever they're working the company and say, you know, I've created this program for myself to help me do what I think is a better job, you know, and to help define what I do and try to create like a little bit of a best practice for myself. And then ask your boss, you know, what am I missing? What would you add? What, whatever. So you're not like putting them in the position like I'm better than you, boss. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you're being very diplomatic about it, but in a very nice way, you're promoting yourself. Sure. And you know what? I'm a big believer in let them take credit. If they want to take sure. credit for it, you know, some people say, oh, I got a terrible boss because they stole my idea or right. they, they, they took my idea and they took all the credit for it with senior leadership. You know what? You get to take credit for it on your resume. You get to take credit for it maybe when you're speaking in front of your team or a larger department or something and say, one of the things that my team was able to do was this, and I'm very proud of them. And and you do it in a humble way, but uh, you're linked to it, obviously, right? So you help to deliver and drive this, and it helps the you know the entire team or the entire organization. So again, another one of those virtuous circle type of processes that can help everybody win. Right, right, excellent. Well, this is great. I think we've anything else that you would other pieces of advice. Like, do you have a, a book uh, that you? really love that had a lot of influence on your career or is there a, do you have a business hero? <laughs> uh, I guess my dad, to some extent, he's no longer with us. He was a, a plant manager with Coca-Cola for 33 years. Oh, wow. Um, for a long time. And and my oldest brother's still with Coca-Cola for gosh, over 42 years now. So, um, so anyway, I would say my dad, but you know, along the way, you know, I'm, I'm a big Jack Welch fan. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure many people know him quite well. And obviously he's no longer with us. Um, you know, I think he passed last year, but, but there's a ton to learn from Jack, you know, and he was a scientist if you think back. Right. So he was a scientist that really got into the business side of things. And he went down as one of the, the best CEOs of all time. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in what uh, Jack, you know, teaches and preaches, if you will, you know, he was a, he had some sharp edges to him. Let's be, let's be fair. Sure. But there's uh, there's some good with that, and and maybe there's some ways to soften some of that and still do good things. So, so I would say Jack Welch probably and my dad. Um, from a book perspective, you know, I I love coming up with new ideas. I, as far as a person who's in operations, I think of myself as actually quite a creative person. Yes, I like to leverage benchmarking and things like this, but then I add my own thoughts or other people in the team's thoughts to what we see as, uh, you know, best practices, if you will. Mm-hmm. And by the addition of the other ideas, we try to come up with a hybrid that will be more applied and better for us, right? And this is a lot of creative problem solving, a lot of creative solutions that we like to come up with. So I like to think of myself as a creative person. There's actually a book that I love in this space. 
um, from a, actually it comes from a futurist named Daniel Burris and it's called Flash Foresight. I'm it's familiar with him. I'm yeah, familiar yeah, so with him, yeah. So, so it's, and it's, the funny thing is it's not even a book on ideation. Uh, it's not intended to be a book on ideation. It's actually a book on sort of how to predict the future, the future in markets and things like this. But the thing is, if you're able to predict the future, you're actually creatively coming up with solutions of what is about to happen in the future. But through that process, you're actually coming up with new ideas, right? Sure. And so he actually has a great format in there and it comes down to like every single new idea. I don't care if it's the iPhone or Amazon web services or whatever breaks down into, and I forget how many exactly it might've been seven or 10 type of idea categories that Daniel Burris talks about in that book. Every single one um, breaks into one of these categories. And so if you have this structure, this format of, okay, all ideas kind of break into these types, then you apply those types, if you will, to a problem that you might have, right? It may, you know, one of his ideas is, you know, whatever the problem is in front of you, do the opposite, just completely do the opposite, right? Another one of his ideas is whatever your biggest problem is, completely skip it. It's not your problem. It never was your problem. And you thought it was your biggest problem, right? And he goes on to prove how this works. It doesn't work every time, but it works actually a lot of the time. And um, surprisingly, so so um, Flash Foresight by Daniel Burris, I highly, highly recommend. I'll put that in the show notes. And by the way, I put your LinkedIn uh, link um, in the show notes and some stuff about me. But since we mentioned the book, I'll definitely put that in there. Thank you. Well, great. Well, this has been really, um, really insightful hour that we've spent together. I, I think the listeners, you know, will have learned quite a bit from, from your experience, from your advice, um, from a career standpoint and management standpoint. So I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Ted. I appreciate it. And I do reserve the right. You get that book out. We're going to have another, uh, we're going to have another interview when the book comes out. So I, I want to be on your, um, part of the book marketing program so we can really delve into the book more deeply and also see where you are at that time and what's going on in your professional life. Great. Well, I welcome it. So uh, look, look forward to that day. All right. Super. All right, Ted. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I'm sort of amazed at the ground that Jeff and I just covered. He shares a ton of great advice, self-education, the career tactics he chose to avoid getting stuck in one position, operations collaborating with sales and marketing to create what he calls the virtuous circle, the four-step process to accelerating your career, and more. If you take away just one or two things from this past hour, you are better off today than you were yesterday. In the show notes, you'll find links to Jeff's profile, to my profile and, and other links, and also a link to the book by Daniel Burris that was Flash Forecast that he recommended. Thanks so much for listening into our conversation today. Now go win your week. <laughs> <laughs>